Well, once again, brethren, let's bow together, not as a matter, I trust, of mere form, but out of a present sense of our need of God's grace and help. Let's seek him for that help. Our Father, we would hear echoing in the ears of our hearts the words of our Lord Jesus, without me you can do nothing. And while we confess that we are painfully slow to believe those words and to live by the reality of them, constantly going out of ourselves and into Christ by fresh actings of faith, we thank you that you forgive us for our sins of creature confidence and we would at the outset of this hour repudiate all confidence in ourselves and look to you for the needed grace that everything that you have purposed for this hour would be accomplished by that grace. Hear then our prayers and meet with us, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brethren, for reasons already given to you, we're approaching this matter of the sermon construction or the content and form of the sermon from the standpoint that each sermon has three essential parts, the introduction, the discussion or argument, and the conclusion. Having considered the function and structure of the introduction, we're now engaged in the task of seeking to grasp guidelines that will enable us to go about the task of composing the discussion or argument part of our sermons with some clear sense of what we are doing in that endeavor. In our previous lecture, we considered the discussion or argument of a topical expository sermon or a series of such sermons. In this lecture, we will direct our attention to the discussion segment of a textual expository sermon. And as we do, let me just briefly remind you what I mean by a textual expository sermon. It's a sermon in which all the truth expounded is drawn primarily from one verse, part of a verse, or one group of verses in the Scriptures. If you remember my analogy from the stage play, I said that in the textual expository sermon, this is a sermon in which the entire stage and all the actors and action are taken primarily from the one passage or text that you are expounding. As we take up the subject then of this lecture, we'll follow the same outline as we did in the previous lecture. We'll consider the goals envisioned in the discussion of a textual expository sermon. Secondly, the disciplines essential for the attainment of those goals. And thirdly, some miscellaneous suggestions concerning the discussion or argument of a textual expository sermon. First of all then, what goals should we have before us? Again, we've come to our desk. We are convinced that we ought to expound this text or that text or this small group of verses, not as part of a series of sermons, but an individual sermon 
What should be our goals when we're done and we place our notes on the desk and leave the study? What should we leave there? Well, let me set before you four goals for the textual expository sermon. And the first goal is that of explicating the setting of the text. To explicate means to make clear, to make explicit what is only implicit or what is otherwise not clear. Now, is this a necessity? Is there any real necessity to take the time to open up and explicate the setting of the text? Or is this just a kind of wearisome uh, homiletical habit into which preachers have fallen? Well, obviously, the answer to that question is a resounding no, Because your task and my task in the preaching of the word is to be able to say what the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with regard to his new covenant ministry. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, even as we obtain mercy, we faint not. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation or full display of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's our task, to handle the word of God in a way that none could say justly we handled it deceitfully, which means in many instances That text that we are committed to expound, that group of verses, has references before and after which color the meaning of that text, and therefore time must be taken to explicate the context. I remind you of the words of Alexander. Here he's dealing with consecutive expository preaching, but the principle is the same with an individual text. The expository method of preaching is best fitted to communicate the knowledge of scriptural truth in its connection. The knowledge of the Bible is something more than the knowledge of its isolated sentences. And then a statement I read previously, the logical connection is no less the result of inspiration than any individual statement in the scriptures. And so this matter of explicating the context is an essential part of a responsible textual expository sermon. And if the explication of the context is one aspect of the goal in our preaching such sermons, let me suggest that this part of our sermon be characterized by three words. Number one, accuracy. We must be able to say, having opened up the context, we have not handled the word of God deceitfully, but we've made an open display of the truth. A second word is clarity or perspicuity. The force of the context of the text itself will not be felt if the explanation we give of the context is not clear. 
If our explanation simply leaves people scratching their heads saying, what in the world was he saying? They've already been distracted. They've already been discouraged from feeling that what you're going to do in the opening up of the text is going to take them to a higher level of understanding. So accuracy, clarity. The third word is brevity. Some men spend so much time doing what they call setting the context that they greatly intrude on the time left for the opening up of the text. This would be like someone spending so much time setting a table with fine china, exquisite silverware, beautiful linen napkins, while skimping on the time needed to serve a tasteful and a nourishing meal. Under this heading of seeking accuracy, perspicuity, and brevity, With respect to opening up the context, let me say a few things concerning this matter. Number one, some text may be treated accurately with very little reference, if any, to their context or setting. For example, if you were preaching on Proverbs 28 and verse 13, He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall obtain mercy. When you look at that verse, verses 11 and 12 have nothing to do with the subject. Verses 14 and following have nothing to do with the subject. All you would need to say is, our text this morning is taken from what is described in verse 1 of chapter 25. These also are Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. And here is a collection with no overarching thematic umbilical cord holding them together. And so it is proper that we take this observation of Solomon as an isolated statement of universal truth, and then you move right in to your exposition. So there are some passages where you need not spend any or very little time in dealing with the context. However, if you were to preach, say, on Philippians 3 and verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit or by the Spirit, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, and the title of your sermon was to be the three characteristics of the spiritually circumcised man you would of necessity have to deal with the context. The background of those statements is the influence of the Judaizers upon the Philippians. You would have to go into the previous context where Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the knife-wielders, and then goes on in the subsequent context to set himself forward as someone who has become a truly spiritually circumcised man who had all his confidence in his previous literal physical circumcision smashed along with this whole massive structure of things that at one time were all important, but he now regards them as dung. 
And so don't bind yourself again by feeling I must spend so much time. Certain passages, common sense would tell us, need very little reference to the context. And also, there are times when though the text itself is embedded in a tightly knit uh, connection of truth, you are extracting a universal principle from that text and you tell your people, I'm not expounding the issues that this passage in which the text is found, that's not my purpose, but within that is a statement of a universal principle that could be set down almost anywhere in the scriptures and it would be true. And then you plunge right in with a good conscience that ignoring or spending very little time in the context is a proper thing to do. Furthermore, in some instances, the context may have been underscored and opened up in the introduction to your sermon. This will be particularly true in the narrative portions of the Word of God. For example, if you were preaching on the text in 1 Kings 18, 20-21, focusing on the question of the prophet Elijah, why do you go limping between two opinions? You have maybe already described the scene on Mount Carmel with the false prophets and the worshipers of Baal in your introduction. Or you might begin by saying something along these lines. Men dislike the crisis of confrontation between the demands of true and false religion. And then you could describe the situation, let people see the setting in which the prophet threw out the challenge, why do you halt between two opinions? But the goal of the textual expository sermon must be to explicate as far as is necessary for responsible exposition of the text, you must explicate the context. But then the second goal, in addition to this goal of explicating the context, is this. It is that in the discussion or argument of a topical expository sermon, you should be seeking to give a convincing explanation of the meaning of the words of your text. Since everything you plan to assert and apply finds its substance from the mind of God as contained in the words of your text, you must seek to gain the hearty consent of your hearer's judgment with respect to the meaning that you assign to the words of the text. How we arrive at that meaning awaits our consideration of the means to attain this goal, but suffice it to say that this must indeed be our conscious goal. Albert Barnes has wisely written the following words, quote, The Bible should be explained not under the influence of a vivid imagination, but under the influence of a heart imbued with a love of the truth and by an understanding discipline to investigate the meaning of words and phrases and capable of rendering a reason for the interpretation which is proposed. Profound words. That's what we must do in our preaching. So, this part of the discussion of our sermon, this part of the argument, should be characterized 
by three words. Accuracy, clarity, and brevity. Accuracy. Although there may be only one or two sentences in the text, seeking to give an accurate exposition of those sentences may represent many hours of arduous labor. It's a most sobering responsibility to stand before a congregation, to read a text in their hearing, and then propose to declare what the living and true God, the God of truth, means by the words which he himself has placed in the scriptures. By means of the Spirit's direct and supernatural operation upon the mind and spirit of a prophet, the prophet could say, Thus says the Lord, with all the authority of Yahweh behind his every word. You and I can only say those words when we have accurately ascertained the mind of the Spirit as contained in the words of Scripture. When we do this, that which we speak is indeed the very word of the living God. And while we do not claim infallibility for our every interpretation, we do speak the living word of God with authority. Christ speaks through us, to his people when we handle the word of God in this responsible way. Dabney's words again are most perceptive. The explication of the passage on which you preach should be plain and convincing. In this part of his task, it behooves the preacher to show the hand of a master workman He should so establish the view of the meaning which he has adopted after careful deliberation as to extinguish doubt and cavil argument in every attentive mind and to commend his opinion conclusively to his hearers. And this should be done with an air of solid good sense rather than that of scholastic nicety. The Bible should be approached as a popular book and not a learned riddle, a book given by God to the common people, a book which, while it contains unfathomable depths of wisdom and knowledge, yields its instruction on all truth fundamental to salvation to every honest and earnest searcher. The manner of the expounder should seem to say to his hearers, Quote, these scriptures do not indeed disclose their treasures to heedless indolence and shallow inattention, but they offer them to the faithful inquiry of every plain mind. Come with me, and we shall by prayer and carefulness find the undoubted meaning of the Spirit. Wonderful words, and brethren, that's exactly what we're aiming at in our Textual, expository sermon in opening up the words of the text. That ought to be our great goal, accuracy in that endeavor. But then, not only must accuracy mark our handling of the text, but the second word that should characterize all of our opening up of specific text is the word clarity. Although you may have just a few lines or a paragraph of explanation 
It may mean that dozens of pages of commentary have been consulted and hours have been spent tracking down the precise meaning of those words in the language and grammar in which the God of truth spoke them to us. But they must be spoken clearly and working at clarity is one of the great disciplines of our task. But then accuracy, clarity, should have also Brevity. You must not spend so much time defining words and explaining the significance of grammar that you have no time really to preach the central truths in the text you are seeking to expound. And here again, Dabney has some very perceptive words to speak to us. He says, The sensible hearer will justly regard the unnecessary reference to learned authors, the citation of the original languages, the employment of the technicalities of hermeneutics, the quoting of erroneous explanations for the purpose of refuting them, the average listener will regard all of this as designed to display yourself rather than the truth. For his good sense will remind him that none of these are really necessary to the unfolding of the meaning of the word. Now this next sentence, brethren, it should be written with a pen of iron on our hearts. The able expounder exhibits not the processes, but the results of his learning. Not the processes. You're not taking your people back in the study with you and sitting them down as you trace out and track down the meaning of words, etc. No, no, no. You're giving them the polished fruit of all that labor in the study. So that which should mark our opening up of the text is the, are these three words, accuracy, clarity, and brevity. Now let me make a few qualifying remarks in this area of giving a clear and convincing demonstration of the meaning of the words of your text. If you are extracting a doctrine, a duty, or a general proposition, this element of explaining words will normally come at the beginning of the discussion part of your sermon and then little or no such explanation will be given throughout the rest of the sermon. For example, if you were taking 1 Corinthians 1.21, after that in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom knew not God, and the title of your sermon was The Futility of Human Wisdom to Attain a Saving Knowledge of God, you could take those words, open them up in a relatively brief time, and say this is what they are asserting. The world by its wisdom, knew not God. The world, its wisdom, it has no saving knowledge of God. Once you had done that and established that the text does indeed make this affirmation, you would not have to go back to those key words again. You would be opening up that proposition from that text. However, in some textual preaching, You are going to be doing this two, three, maybe four times as you work through the opening up of the text. For example, when I preach on Isaiah 53, 6, I call it the bad news and the good news. The bad news, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
the bad news is set before us under a vivid simile. All we like sheep. What's the imagery? Then it's set before us in a blunt assertion. We have turned every one of us to his own way. Then we have the good news of God's gracious provision for sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That provision centers on the hymn of the text. Who is he? And you trace it back to the end of chapter 52. It's the servant of the Lord. And all of God's provision focuses upon the hymn of the last part of the verse. And what has God done with reference to the hymn? That is good news. The Lord himself has taken the initiative and he has made to light or strike upon the suffering servant his righteous wrath against human sin. So you are giving definition and delineation to words all the way through the sermon, making your applications as you go. But there again, we've got to develop a kind of personal artistry in how we handle our Textual expository sermons. If our goal is that we're going to explicate the context and then give a convincing explanation of the meaning of the text, whatever's necessary to do that, we must do it. But then there is a third goal that ought to be constantly before us at our desk, and that is an articulation of the burden of the text. Our foundational task is to show that we've extracted the proper meaning of the text. That's the didactic element in our preaching. However, if our preaching is to have the prophetic element, that is the authoritative, thus saith the Lord to you and to you and to you, that which turns the sermon into real preaching, then you must seek to discern and be able to convey the genuine burden of that text. For example, when I'm preaching on that Isaiah 53, 6 text, one of my most used evangelistic sermons, the burden of that text is fundamentally twofold. To convey to my hearers that they have gone astray like a sheep, and they have with clenched fists told God to mind his own business while they do their own business. That's the burden of the first half of the text. Not just to give a statement of universal total depravity hanging up here, but to bring home to the heart of every listener, I'm one of those sheep. I'm one of those who's turned to his own way. Whatever that means for me, my way is different from your way, but what we have in common for both of us, it's our own way. And likewise, you're not simply trying to set forth the doctrine of the penal substitutionary suffering of the servant of Jehovah hung up here. You want the listener to see the wonder of God's grace in that he has made to light upon the substitute the iniquity of us all. And feeling the burden of the text where you... Before God, believe you want to see your people moved and where you want them to act in the light of that text. It is this principle which led many of our forefathers in homiletics to insist that we should seek to reduce the burden of any given text to a simple and straightforward proposition. It bothered me for quite some time when I read in all the older writers almost a unanimous consent. You ought to reduce the burden of the text 
to a proposition. But I think this is what they were reaching for, is that by reducing it to a proposition, it was taking the diffusive elements of the light of the text and passing it through a magnifying glass and concentrating it on a single point. Now, I don't agree that we can do that with every text and certainly cannot do it in consecutive expository preaching, but I think it was this that they were trying to articulate, and while we don't buy into the thing that they were saying, I think the principle is that we must seek to feel the burden of that text. In the Puritan tradition, this was often stated as the doctrine. You'd have the text there, and then you'd see doctrine, and then it would be stated in the proposition, and then you'd have uses. How does this apply to the people? So that brings us to the fourth goal in the textual expository sermon, and it is this. In our discussion part of the sermon, we should seek to drive home to the consciences of our hearers an application of the abiding not only message, but the abiding demands of that text. As you sit at your desk, you must remind yourself you are not there laboring in order to make a unique contribution to the history of the exegesis of the passage or text that you're going to expound. You are seeking to bring home a word from God to the hearts and consciences of your people who will gather before you on the Lord's day. Constantly remember as you sit at your desk anticipating that awesome moment of truth when you will stand before the people of God in the special presence of the living God that you need to present to them a pressingly vital word to their hearts and their consciences. And therefore as a vital part of the discussion or argument of a textual sermon is the application you will make to the hearts of your people with the abiding message of that text. Whether the application comes primarily as comfort, directive, rebuke, inference, observation, deduction, the application must be made. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For teaching. You have given the teaching of the passage when you have properly expounded it. But you don't stop there. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so you sit at your desk with that text, confident you've properly understood the mind of God and what will constitute its teaching. Now what in the text constitutes its reproof, its correction, it's training in righteousness. Or Romans 15, 4, where Paul says concerning what was then just the Old Testament scriptures, why has God given the scriptures? Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, there's the didactic, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. What in this passage is calculated to give comfort to the people of God? Or 1 Corinthians 10.11, where Paul tells us that that segment of Old Testament history dealing with the wilderness wanderings has a very specific purpose. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Now these things happened unto them by way of example. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come. What in this passage is calculated to give admonition. And it is my responsibility responsibly to discover it, articulate it, and preach it to our people. Whatever final applications may be reserved for the conclusion or peroration of the sermon, as a general rule, you should seek to make applications as part of the main body of the sermon. So, in summary, with regard to this matter of the goals of a textual expository sermon, these are the goals, and in a sense we could reverse them and say the ultimate goal an application of the message of the text. The intermediate goal, an explanation of the words of the text. The preliminary goal, a description or explication of the context. It just occurred to me it was an interesting mental exercise, and so I put it in my notes. Okay. Now, having set before you the goals envisioned in the discussion or argument of a textual expository sermon... Let's consider in the second place the disciplines essential to attain these goals. As with the previous lecture, we'll break down the material into three sections. Initial steps, intermediate steps, concluding steps. Initial steps, where do we begin? Where we begin with every single one. Earnest prayer for the present assistance and help of the Holy Spirit in our labors at the desk. When we actually come to our desk to do the work of preparing a specific discourse upon a specific text with reference to a specific opportunity of ministry, it's essential that our minds and heart be brought into an elevated frame of conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit seeking his presence and blessing upon us in our labors. And you will have in your quotes, I don't have time to read it, but it's a marvelous quote from Shedd about this whole matter of praying ourselves into an elevated frame of sensitivity to God and to his word. And we desperately need to remind ourselves of that every time we come to our desk. But then the second initial step is this. We should engage in an attentive and repeated reading of the text itself in its native setting. There's no substitute for obtaining a general acquaintance with the overall pattern of thought in which our text is found, and a repeated reading of the text itself in its context will make your dealings with the context as well as the text more likely to be accurate and artful. Again, such a repeated and reflective reading of the text in its context can go a long way in preventing us from handling the text in either a novel or irresponsible and inaccurate way. To give an example of that, you have in your notes that quote from Professor Murray uh, dealing with an irresponsible treatment of the words that Christ spoke regarding the Sabbath. But consideration of the context 
shuts us up from that kind of a use of the text. But then in the third place, you must engage in a careful analysis of the text itself. And that analysis should involve the following things. Number one, a careful consideration of the grammatical construction of the text. This will involve seeking to discover the main finite verb or verbs, the participles, the independent, dependent clauses. We have got to seek to penetrate the mind of God that comes to us in grammar with words and words in relationship to one another in clauses and phrases. Secondly, at this point in your preparation, you'll want to do a careful study of the key words in the text. And once again, your concordances, your lexicons, and your more technical commentaries will be your helper. And while undertaking these various disciplines, you should seek to conserve the fruit of your study by keeping several sheets of paper before you on your desk. And here I, I have to be biographical. I can only tell you what worked for me over the course of close to 50 years. I kept on my desk at least three different sheets of paper. One of them I labeled my exegesis sheet. And there I would record whatever insights came from doing the more technical work on significant meaning of words, grammar, etc. And then I had what was called my homiletical or outline sheet, where I began to see how this could take shape into a well-organized sermon and begin to write down some of those things. And then I had another sheet called my application sheet. And just having it there was constantly reminding me, this sermon's got to go somewhere into the lives of God's people. And if sheet number three is blank, my sermon's going to be a blank. Until the application finds its way to the heart and life, there's something radically defective. So at that point in the preparation, keeping that, those three sheets before me, and once in a while I had a miscellaneous ideas sheet when my mind seemed to be having stuff that didn't fit in any of the others, but I wanted to capture it, not knowing where they might fit in the sermon, so I called that miscellaneous sheet. Well, that was a, a framework that I find helpful. You've got to find the one that's most helpful for you, and it's at that point, you see, that however adept you are at a computer, at this point, us old pen folk, we've got your hands down. Uh, I mean, you're going to be bringing up four different windows with the application. Of, no, no, no. Sit there with your papers in front of you. Join the paper gang. And when you're done, you need it all finished in the rest, then you can go to your computer and do your work. All right. So much for that little uh, free aside. Those are the initial steps in a textual expository sermon. Now let's move quickly to the intermediate steps in the construction of such a sermon. Number one, you've got to now seek to reduce the materials to their natural divisions. If someone were to dump the building materials for a house in your backyard, the first thing you'd have to do if you're going to construct a house is to sort out the raw materials. You're going to have to put the block, not the blocks. If you're in construction work, it's block singular, even though you may have a hundred blocks. But you put the block all in one pile, 
And then you put the two-by-fours that are going to be the framing in one pile and the two-by-sixes or the two-by-eights or two-by-tens that are going to be your trusses and are going to uh, form the structure of your floors. You've got to sort out those materials. They've all been dumped in a big heap. You've got to sort them out if you're going to construct a house. Well, in the same way, you've got to take the fruit of your understanding of the passage, sort it into the categories that will help you to construct a sermon. And you must allow the text itself to determine the divisions and not force upon the text that which is unnatural, novel, or an artificially determined number of divisions. While it's often the case that three divisions seem to be the most natural and compatible to the ordinary workings of the human mind, Dr. Lloyd-Jones tells a very humorous story of how ridiculous this practice can become. He tells about a preacher and he said, this is true, this is not apocryphal. This man had to have three points. So he was preaching on one occasion on the text, Balaam arose early and saddled his ass. After introducing the subject and reminding his hearers of the story, he came to the headings. Division number one. First, he said, we find a good trait in a bad character. He got up early in the morning. That's a good trait. And so he preached a little topical sermon on being an early riser. Then secondly, the antiquity of saddlery. He saddled his ass. Way back then they had saddles. So you've got a good trait and a bad character. And then you have this, uh, the antiquity of saddlery. Saddlery is not something modern and new. And then the inspiration seems to have vanished. And he couldn't think of another heading. Yet he felt he must have three heads to the sermon. Otherwise he would not be a great preacher. So the division of the sermon were eventually announced. A good trait and a bad character, number one. The antiquity of saddlery number two. Thirdly and lastly, a few remarks concerning the woman of Samaria. (laughs) That was his third head. Now that literally happened. This is not apocryphal. From that, let us learn not to force the text and not to add to it. Do not become a slave to these mechanical notions. You've got to reduce it to its heads. But if there are only two heads, as I said, when I preach Isaiah 53, 6, I believe there are two major divisions. The bad news of our desperate condition in sin and the good news of God's glorious and gracious provision for sin. Why stick a third head when God didn't put it in the text itself? Seek to reduce the materials to their natural divisions. Secondly, you must now seek to wisely arrange the divisions. You may choose to alter the order in which the divisions appear in the text itself. Again, consult the previous lectures in which I deal with the subject of the form and structure of the sermon. It's at this point that you and I must engage in the creative and artistic element of homiletical skill. I threw away more paper at this stage in sermon preparation than perhaps at any other stage in my preparation. Now let me illustrate, and as I was going over these lectures last night and again early this morning, 
I've added some illustrations because I said if I just deal with the concept, it may not click. If I were preaching on Romans six twenty-two, and having been made free from sin, you became servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. When I've preached that in the past, I've preached it under the three heads, a change of masters. Free from sin, servants to God. A change of practice, you have your fruit unto holiness. A change of destiny, in the end everlasting life. But you see, you could invert that and say, anyone here that wants to end up someplace other than heaven? Anyone here that consciously wants to go to hell? I think not. Our text tells us that for certain people, the end of their lives will be everlasting life. Look at our text. And the end, everlasting life. Your first point would be the destination we all desire. Your second point would be the way to that destination. You must have a change of masters resulting in a change of practice. Now, I've responsibly opened up the language of the text, but I have inverted artistically and for pastoral reasons and purposes how I arrange those things. So don't get yourself bound to one way of arranging things so long as you are honestly handling the text of Scripture. And it's perfectly legitimate to consult others who've handled your text and receive help from them in this matter of good divisions. However, if you borrow the outline of another man, which you may well do, acknowledge your debt to the author when you preach. If you don't, you're really guilty of plagiarism and you may be undermining your credibility with your people since some of them may just have happened to hear the man preach that or read the book or commentary in which he did it. A time after time when I preached through First Peter, I had to acknowledge my people. In this part of my exposition, I am thoroughly indebted to Mr. Hebert who has broken down this text in a way I can't improve upon since it blessed me. I don't want to be selfish. I want to pass it on to you. So then you appear humble and altruistic both at the same time by acknowledging, just be honest, I'm in debt. And now this is why, this is what I have had. Then thirdly, at this point, you must now seek carefully to word your divisions. Divide the material, Arrange the material, now you've got to give words to it. And wherever possible, use parallel linguistic constructions. Whether you're using adjectives, nouns, or verbs, strive for this parallelism. I go back to the Romans 6.22. What was the parallelism? A change of masters. A change of practice. A change of destiny. That's giving parallel construction. It helps people to follow more easily and it makes your sermon more stickable. Now at this point, don't be afraid of alliteration. On the other hand, don't become a slave to alliteration. Sometimes forced alliteration can undermine your credibility for being a man of good sense and apparent seriousness. Some alliteration I've heard was just downright ridiculous. It made me smile rather than worship. 
it made me pity the preacher that he was either uh, so enamored with his ability to be clever or was so insensitive not to realize he was going to force me to smile just listening to the way he alliterated. So don't force it. Some men have a very natural ability. There's one preacher, every time I heard him, it was alliterated. And I said, I bet you anything that man alliterated the proposal to his wife. I mean, he just, it's, and he had a great facility in it. And most of the time, it was very comfortable. Once in a while, you said, at that point, he should have given up and said, I've got an unalliterated sermon, folks, even though it's contrary to my normal pattern. He was a very good preacher. But just that word about alliteration. Now, for obtaining help in this part of your preparation, carefully wording your divisions, I cannot recommend too highly Rodale's Synonym Finder. That book, I've worn the spine thin on it. It's been an invaluable tool and assistant to me for many, many years. And it's more usable than the ordinary thesaurus because it's compiled just like a dictionary. Any word you want to look up, it begins with D-A. Just look it up like in the dictionary. And there you will find a plethora of synonyms. It's amazing how rich the English language is. When you think of all that's in that book, it's called Rodale, R-O-D-A-L-E, Synonym Finder. Now, you must not become discouraged at this point in your sermon preparation. Some have an unusual native ability in this area of sermonizing. It is said of Alexander McLaren that he had a golden hammer with which he struck any text, and it broke into three heads. Now, if I could sell you a golden hammer, I think the bidding would go quite high. You'd be in competition with me. I'd like such a hammer. Others of us, we must strive to attain some measure of competence in this area. It may not be a natural strength for you. However, with prayer and pains, you can cultivate a greater efficiency in this vital aspect of sermon preparation. Now then we move quickly to the concluding steps in preparing the discussion or argument of a textual sermon. When the major work of preparing the discussion for your sermon is done, go back over the materials and seek to discern whether or not there are places where appropriate illustrations would help elucidate or enforce the pressure of that truth upon the minds and hearts of your people. I tried to carry with me that imagery that Spurgeon uses about illustrations in his lectures to his students. He says, a house built of nothing but reinforced concrete walls would be a very safe place, but a very dull place. Punch some holes in the walls. And if you've built up a wall of solid, responsible exposition, and you've made intellectual demands upon your people for 15 or 20 minutes, say, well, would it not be nice now to punch a little hole, to give an illustration that will brighten their eyes and, and relax the mind for a moment? I'm not talking about telling some silly joke, but an illustration, seeing if there's a judicious place that you might be able to insert an illustration then go back over the same material and see if there are places along the way where applications ought to be made in the midst of the discussion or the argument. 
And once again, I urge you at this point in your preparation to work on your connecting statements, your transitions, your recapitulations. Don't trust these things to the moment when you are actually preaching. Remember my exhortation not to put your sermons together with invisible glue or transparent mortar. Your recapitulations and transitions are the glue that hold it together. They're the mortar, and we ought to let people see where the mortar is that holds the bricks in the structure. And then, very, very quickly, some miscellaneous suggestions concerning the construction of the discussion or the argument of a textual expository sermon. Number one, seek to expose yourself to a variety of good models of textual expository preaching. It's an increasingly deep conviction of mine that whatever else effective preaching is, and however people learn to become effective preachers in many ways, preaching is an acquired and imitative spiritual art form. Given that God must give the gifts and the Holy Spirit must empower a man, those are givens. But at the human level, effective preaching is an acquired and an imitative spiritual art form. Men learn to preach by listening to men who can preach and by reading the sermons of men who were preachers. As with any art, one must observe the masters of the art of that particular craft or skill which he seeks to acquire. By observation of competent masters of any art, impressions are made, critical comparisons are undertaken, and skills are observed to be assimilated and used constantly as they are adapted to one's own native constitution and one's own particular gifts. Now, where do we find such models? Well, I suggest the following. Spurgeon must always be placed at the head of models of excellent textual expository preaching. McShane's sermons are good models of simple, clear, Christ-obsessed textual expository preaching. The sermons of Griffin, McLaren, Davy, Shedd, Bishop Ryle, and a host of others. I've given you a copy of the introduction of Manton in a textual sermon that he preached as a good example of how to ease in using the context as the introduction and how to open up a specific text. But hurrying on now, not only seek to expose yourself to a variety of good models, continually read those authors who themselves were considered models of excellent preaching in their day or in our day, and who have written on the art of textual expository preaching. I refer to such men as Dabney, Shedd, Broadus, among the modern writers, Consult John Stott's Between Two Worlds, Al Mohler's book, He Is Not Silent, Stuart Olliot, Ministering Like the Master, and what's the second book that Stuart Olliot? Preaching Pure and Simple by Stuart Olliot, William Taylor, who's been reprinted 
James Garretson, Princeton and preaching, though he's analyzing the preaching of another generation, that's a current book, and Pierre Marcel's marvelous little book called The Relevance of Preaching. Then my third word of counsel, brethren, is this. Don't ever imbibe the notion that you've peaked and that all you can do from here on in is maintain your present level of competence or coast and go downhill. Remember the words of Paul to Timothy. Give yourself wholly to these things that your progress may be manifest unto all. I recently had occasion to send a a first edited version of a sermon to some men to evaluate whether or not they feel it's worth my while to try to be a writer. And I said, look, I've been laboring for 57 years to try to learn how to preach. I'm still working at it. I don't have 57 years to learn how to write. If you don't think I've got it to an extent that it's worthy of giving time to it now, then I'll forget it. I'm willing to to let my ministry in that sense die with me. I've got no ambition to leave legacies for the sake of the name of Al Martin. But we must have this disposition, brethren, as long as we breathe and we have mental acuity enough to be constructing sermons and physical strength enough to preach them, let's press on to be better preachers and expose ourselves to men who are better preachers than we are. Learn from them. Read the things they have said. And then my fourth and final counsel, probably the most difficult one, welcome, welcome, and judiciously receive the criticism of competent critics with respect to your efforts in preaching this kind of sermon. As a master singer can point out the flaws to a fledgling artist, the same is true with respect to our preaching. In fact, young opera singers like to sing in front of the masters who can point out things that their voice coach perhaps never noticed. And you and I ought to do the same with regard to our preaching. But remember, not all of the ones willing to criticize are the best critics. Tozer said something I've never forgotten. He said, if you're wondering whether to receive a a criticism from anyone, look for the oil on their forehead. And what he meant by that is this a spiritually minded person. And there are times that some dear old saint in the congregation that knows God and who's profited from your ministry from years, she can tell you more about defects and good things in your preaching than perhaps another pastor can. So that's why I said, welcome and judiciously receive the criticism of competent critics with respect to your efforts in preaching this kind of sermon. Don't ever be so insecure and filled with wretched pride that you do not seek the input of competent critics to help you to become a better preacher. Well, thankfully, we got through this hour and I got through all ten pages of the lecture with God's help. Let's thank him together. Father, we are indeed thankful for the privilege that is ours to sit here in this context of the domestic stability of our land this air-conditioned building in a setting of mutual love and respect for one another. 
I thank you for this privilege you have given to me at this stage of my pilgrimage to be involved with your servants here and others who will watch and listen to these lectures by means of modern technology. Lord, we are humbled at your goodness. Receive our thanks and continue with us through the hours of this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.